Neville, I'm flattered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning needing a significant um, reorientation for our souls. We need it every week as we uh, come, I think, in need of our compass being pointed toward true north. But I'm thinking especially of the, the tone and the tenor of this text Lord Jesus, Gethsemane was the greatest battle of your life. And it's a battle that you endured and you fought and you won for us. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, to to remove our shoes this morning because we're going to be treading on holy ground. I ask that you would teach us first and foremost about yourself about your unparalleled surrender and suffering for us. And I pray that we would worship and that we would marvel and that we would enjoy the gospel. At the same time, I pray that we would hear in this passage um, instruction and orientation for us in our Gethsemanes, uh, small g. Lord, each of us experience suffering. We, we walk through temptation and adversity. And this passage is one that richly repays our meditation. So I ask that you would help us to not only celebrate what we see here, but also to embody what we see here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time I'd like to invite you to open a Bible to the gospel according to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. The gospel of Luke chapter 22, verse 39. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles found underneath the seat in front of you, this morning's text can be located on page 882 of the red Bibles, 882 in our red Bibles. Luke's gospel chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. One of the great challenges as well as encouragements that we have in the church as we seek to preach and teach and counsel the gospel to one another is the multifaceted nature, getting our minds wrapped around the multifaceted nature of the person and work of Jesus. We know that our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus involves proclaiming him and what he's accomplished, which on the surface of it sounds simple enough, but upon further review and further reflection, what we discover is that the accomplishment of Jesus, while simple, is anything but shallow. As we wade into the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we find is deep, deep waters, And unless we're prepared for it, we're going to find ourselves out of our depth. A case in point, um, do we commend Christ to one another as substitute or example? On the one hand, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that Jesus lived and died in our place as our substitute. 
as our representative, our intermediary. Jesus is our proxy before the Father, and we can be thankful for it. When we say that Jesus did what he did for us, what we mean to say is that he did what he did in our stead, in, on our behalf, taking our place. One of the finest pictures of this in all the Bible is that solemn scene on top of Mount Moriah where Abraham prepares to sacrifice Isaac. Remember the story? The Lord tests Abraham by summoning him to slay his son as a burnt offering on the top of this mountain. And at the great crescendo of that story, Abraham lifts his knife to slaughter his son. And in the last split second, the Lord calls to him, the angel of the Lord calls to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. And then we read in Genesis twenty-two thirteen that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Did you hear it? That's Tim Keller who reminds us that Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. So that when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Now we can look on God taking his son up on the mountain, sacrificing him, and we can say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son from us. So Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Or if you like, Jesus is the ram in Genesis twenty-two thirteen, And we are Isaac. In our place condemned he stood and sealed our pardon with his blood. He's our substitute. And we ought to preach, teach, and counsel Christ in this way. On the other hand, as we trace the storyline of Scripture, we come face to face with the fact that Jesus is not just our substitute, but he's our example in John 13, no sooner than he's washed the disciples' feet, he says to them, beginning in John 13, 13, you call me teacher, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Later on in 1 John, the apostle outlines what we understand to be evidences of the new birth in first john how can you know that you know that you know that you're saved well there's a handful of evidences that john sets forth but one of the key evidences that he offers us is in first john chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 he says by this we may know that we are in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked in other words you know you're in christ when you act like Christ. Serves us notice, doesn't it? The character of Jesus is our pattern. It's our standard. He's our example. Which brings us to the passage before us as well as to our big idea this morning. Is Jesus our substitute or is he our example? According to 1 Peter 2.21, which was already read for you, the answer, of course, is yes. He's both. He's both. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Isn't that remarkable? Peter's not asking us to choose. Rather, Peter's asking us to trust. 
Christ suffered for you. Behold, Christ is your substitute in your place, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Behold, Christ our example. So these twin truths are ones that we want to bear in mind every time we open the Gospels, but maybe uniquely today as we turn our attention to the Garden of Gethsemane. What Jesus does here, he does in our place, and it is absolutely unrepeatable. On the other hand, what Jesus does here, he does to become our pattern, especially as we apply this to prayer. So let's consider three lessons on prayer for us from the Garden of Gethsemane. Three lessons on prayer from the Garden of Gethsemane. Point number one, Jesus prayed to his Father by appointment. Jesus prayed to his Father by appointment. At this place in Luke chapter 22, it's the night of Jesus' betrayal. Uh, The Lord's Supper is over, and we read in verse 39 that he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed. This is not a complicated point. This is just an important point. Jesus prayed to his Father by appointment. You see it there in verse 39? He came out and went... And then these four words, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. I love the King James Version at this point. It says, as he came out, he went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. Isn't that phenomenal? Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to get away so that he could spend deliberate time with his father. It's, it's what he was wont to do. And Luke takes note of it throughout his gospel. Luke 5.16 says that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6.12 says that he went to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9.18 says that he was praying alone. Why does Luke track this? Why is it important? It's important because now, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus has resources. This is his way of life. This is his custom. It's what he was wont to do. There's a passage in the prophet Isaiah that gives us a window into the inner life of our Lord. It's a verse that doesn't speak so much of the Messiah's work as prophet, priest, or king, so much as it shows us how he became our prophet, priest, and king. In the servant songs of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, we listen to the servant speaking in the first person as he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ears to hear as those who are taught. How did Jesus become the man that he was? Isaiah gives us the answer. Morning by morning. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Jesus prayed to the Father by appointment, as was his custom. Well, how about you? Is it your custom? What are your devotional habits like? As one of my friends, David, likes to say it this way, your habits of grace, your private spiritual practices, 
ask yourself this question. If everyone in this church kept your personal private commitments of Christian formation, how would that go for us? Jesus evidently kept his quiet time. And so if your quiet time were the gold standard for our fellowship, would we be on fire? Would we be cold as ice? Would we be lukewarm somewhere in the middle? And notice the point here in verse 39. Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. And what he found there was that he had resources when the hour of temptation came. That's the point here. The same can be true of us. As the Puritans used to like to say, it's in calm weather that you ought to mend your sails. The time to prepare for suffering or for temptation is not when you're smack in the middle of it. It's often far too late then. Now, verse 41 gives us a few other details of interest as well. We'll apply them here one by one. Verse 41, for example, says that when Jesus withdrew from his disciples, he did so about a stone's throw, which is an idiom, of course, for a short distance, but it it indicates nevertheless that while he was with his disciples, it says, who followed him, he, he pulled away deliberately from them to begin to pray to the Father in order to get alone with God. Is this what you do? I'm thinking especially about those of you who find yourself living in what we might call the crunch time right now. We have a lot of young families in this church, a lot of people in their 30s and 40s. And because of your family dynamics, you rarely experience anything that might remotely look like a moment alone. Half of our Sunday morning attendance is under the age of 18, if you haven't noticed these days. I'm at that stage as well. And so I don't suspect that any of us would say that we're busier than Jesus, though, right? Even Jesus, who evidently couldn't get away on his own without the disciples following him, even Jesus withdrew at least a stone's throw from his friends to pray and spend time with his father. Do you do that? You say, but I, I literally don't have a moment of my, for myself from the crack of dawn until sundown. In which case, my answer is, well, then you'll need to be creative, won't you? Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles Wesley, as well as Anne and Mary and Mehetabel and Martha and Amelia and Kazea and Susanna and Samuel Wesley, mother of 10. Susanna Wesley knew this challenge as well. You know what she did? This is before the days when you could just put a, a phone or an iPad in your kid's hand and send them off to the corner. Susanna had this large apron, and she would take it and put it up over her head at the kitchen table, and she would read her Bible and spend time with the Lord there. And the instruction was very clear. When mama is in her tent, she is not to be disturbed. <laughs> and evidently all ten listened to mama. She is the mother of Methodism after all. So do what you need to do to get a stone's throw away like your Savior. We also read in verse 41 that he knelt down. He knelt down. So we begin to reflect on the, the clear biblical teaching of the deity of Christ. What we have here is God on his knees before God. It makes your head spin. Jesus knelt down. How about you? I'm serious. What's your physical posture look like 
when you do get a stone's throw away. You say, that, that doesn't matter. It's what's on the inside that matters. My answer would be, yes, it, it is on the inside what matters, but I don't think we have to make this an either or here, especially as Psalm 95 verse 6 invites us, woos us with, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. And not for nothing, but let's remember that Philippians 2.10 assures us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. How's that going? When's the last time you did that? I'm just thinking we might want to get accustomed to that day that Philippians 2.10 describes. We don't want this to be foreign to us. Lastly, it may appear to go without saying, but let's go ahead and say it anyway. Uh, the text explicitly says in verse 41 that he prayed. This, this gut-wrenching moment, minutes as Jesus is away from the original kiss of death, Jesus didn't stew, he didn't stomp around, he didn't pout, he prayed. And why? It was his custom. It's what he was wont to do. Colossians 4.2 commands us to devote yourselves to prayer. That's what Jesus did with his whole life. He devoted himself to prayer. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And the first lesson on prayer for us from Gethsemane is that Jesus prayed to his Father by appointment. We ought to also. Secondly, Jesus prayed in full view of his friend's abandonment. Jesus prayed in full view of his friend's abandonment. Now, verses 40 and 45 and 46 all cover similar territory, so we'll gather them under one heading right here. Let's take a look together, beginning in chapter 22, verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then after Jesus prays, we read in verses 45 and 46, that when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What can we observe here? I've got two, two general observations to offer, one related to the disciples' slumbers and one related to their, their impending desertion. We'll take each in turn. Let's, let's look at their slumbering first. Verse 45 again. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. What does this mean? It means, in the words of Daryl Bach, that Jesus' impending death has struck home and has emotionally drained them. You ever been there? This is fatigue mixed with melancholy. This is mourning alongside exhaustion. In light of all they've encountered over the last week, and they've seen a lot, from, from the triumphal entry to the clearing of the temple, from the startling teaching about the future in the Olivet Discourse to the Passover meal in which they were informed that one of them was going to betray him, and the banner flying over all of this, of course, is that Jesus had repeatedly predicted his impending death and they know that something is coming here. 
These men are simply burned out. They are bone weary and out of gas. They're sleeping for sorrow. What does Jesus make of all this? Luke doesn't give us the details, but Matthew does. In Matthew 26, 40, Jesus asked Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? And then again in Matthew 26, 45, he says to them, sleep and take your rest later on. In other words, Jesus is, is disappointed without a doubt. And even more significant, though, is what he tells his disciples twice, once in verse 40 and once in verse 46. Jesus has a single, solitary prayer request for them, and it's not even for his sake, it's, it's for theirs. He says to them repeatedly, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. One commentator uh, writing at the time of the Protestant Reformation noted that our Savior tells us to pray, not that we may roll in wealth, not that we may live in a continuous round of pleasures, not that something awful may happen to our enemies, not that we may receive honor in this world, but rather that we may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. John Owen, my pastoral hero, once said, he that would be little in, te- in temptation, let him be much in prayer. It just reverses what Jesus said. He who would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. So the disciples traded up prayer against temptation for sleep. And it was their undoing. Once again, Matthew fills in what Luke leaves unspoken. Matthew twenty six fifty six says that all the disciples left him and fled. They left him. And that's perhaps what makes Jesus' prayer to the Father so remarkably powerful in this moment. Because not only did Jesus pray to his Father by appointment, Jesus prayed in full view of the disciples' abandonment. He knew that they would leave him. He was aware that Peter would deny him. He prophesied that Judas would betray him. And yet he continued in prayer, not only for them, but also to instruct them as well. Jesus' example is so critical for us. This is a lesson that we need to learn over and over again as we grow in our Christian lives, over the course of our Christian lives. The Apostle Paul put it so immediately in in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, when he wrote that, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul gets this so clearly, doesn't he? He's a man of the mission. It's like for Paul, the church was the one organization on planet Earth that existed for the sake of its non-members. You know what I mean? Listen to me. You walk long enough with the Lord, people will let you down. They just will And yes, it goes the other way around. You live long enough, you will let people down. You will. Count on it. But if our commitment to Christ rises and falls with other Christians' commitment to us, our commitment isn't worth much. What Christ tells us in Hebrews 13, 5 is something that no other person in the world can possibly promise you, and it's this. 
I will never leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Just as Paul says to Timothy, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When other believers betray your trust, when they disappoint you, when they fail you, don't turn away from the Lord. He's the only one who won't abandon you. So Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So the second lesson for prayer for us from Gethsemane is that Jesus prayed in full view of his, his friend's abandonment. Final point today. Jesus prayed to surrender and become our atonement. Jesus prayed to surrender and become our atonement. Hebrews 5, 7, it says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You know when that happens? Right here. Right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's read it. Luke 22, verses 42 and 43. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, verse 42 is the moment in Jesus' ministry when he is pressed to the absolute edge of his faithfulness to God. In this moment, we find out just how human Jesus actually is. And he's very, very human. He asks the Father to remove the cup of wrath from his lips so that he doesn't have to drink it. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he hears nothing. It's just, just brass heavens, you know what I mean? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me and silence. The Father will not honor this request. So Jesus adds, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is when the battle's won, right here. In his outstanding book entitled Living the Cross-Centered Life, author and pastor C.J. Mahaney writes, as we watch Jesus pray in Gethsemane, he has every right to turn his tearful eyes toward you and me and shout, this is your cup. You're responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. This cup should be rightfully thrust into your hand and mine. Instead, Jesus freely takes of it himself so that from the cross he can look down at you and me and whisper our names and say, I drain this cup for you. You who have lived in defiance of me, who have hated me, 
who have opposed me. I drink it all for you. CJ concludes, this is what makes our sin necessary. This is what our sin makes necessary. This is what's required by your pride and my pride, by your selfishness and my selfishness, by your disobedience and my disobedience. Behold him, behold his suffering, and recognize his love. And then in verses 43 and 44, we see facets of Jesus on his knees that are completely unique to Luke's gospel, and we ought to mark them well, three of them. First of all, notice in verse 43, it tells us that there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. You know, if we could only see things unseen, we might be willing to press into adversity and suffering more than we do, more readily than we typically do anyway. What if when you next cry out to the Lord to remove your suffering from you, he didn't sweep it away, but he actually sent an angel at your side to strengthen you? That be enough for you? I, th- I think it would be. Second verse, uh, second thing we need to see in verse 44, it says that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Well, how unlike us our Savior is. We, being in agony, complain and assert our rights. And we give in, not Jesus. Jesus, strengthened by the angel's presence, no doubt, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. By the way, we're not imitating anymore. We're just enjoying. We're just worshiping. Jesus is our substitute. He goes where we don't go. Finally, verse 44 even tells us that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And we need to be careful here. Sometimes in our desire to honor the suffering of our Savior, we mishandle this text. Verse 44 does not tell us that Jesus sweat blood. It says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It's a metaphor. Scripture can do that, does that routinely. It's a very vivid metaphor, painting a portrait of his unparalleled distress and his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is on his knees. He is covered with sweat. It is beating all over him, and it's dripping to the ground like a stuck vein But it is suggestive, isn't it? Because Jesus' blood did drop for us. It happened not at Gethsemane. It happened on Calvary, where Jesus died to drain the cup of God's wrath against our sin to the end, though he himself never sinned. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it so wonderfully. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Praise God for it. Well, let's review. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
Three lessons on prayer for us from the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed to his father by appointment. Jesus prayed in full view of his friend's abandonment. And Jesus prayed to surrender and become our atonement. At the end of Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the desert with the devil, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from him until an opportune time. Isn't it clear from our study this morning that this was the opportune time? The decisive battle of Jesus' life was not won at the cross. Rather, it was run right here at Gethsemane. This is the tipping point. After Gethsemane, there's no looking back for Jesus. But it's here in the garden when Jesus experiences the most exquisite temptation of his life, and he resists it. Friends, my hope in this moment is that this truth gives you triumphant courage as you seek to follow Jesus this week. In the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your temptation, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. Let us there with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews four fifteen and 16. May we discover deep fellowship with him in our sufferings. May his praying in his adversity become the catalyst for our praying in our adversity. You'll never suffer like Jesus did. May we take comfort in the fact that he understands our temptations from the inside out and he's resisted them. Only Jesus knows the full weight of temptation when we all give in at one time or another. Jesus can be trusted when we turn to him. And may we believe it afresh today in the words of 1 John 2, 1 and 2, that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Well, let's do what we've been talking about right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a full and complete Savior. Substitute, yes. An example, yes. You provide us pardon for our sin. You provide us power to live above our sin. You understand our sufferings. You understand all of our temptations. You have been tempted as we are in every way and yet without sin. And therefore, you don't ever just say to us, good luck with all that. You went to the cross and you took all of it on yourself, in your body, on the tree. And so, Lord, as we prepare, as we see the weeks of, of Lent just peering around the corner, we marvel that the battle is won decisively here in Gethsemane. This was it. 
And with this in your rear view mirror, you move steadily, purposefully, unflinchingly to the cross. And we praise you for it. Lord Jesus, may we never move on from the cross, but only more profoundly into it. I ask, Lord, that as a church, that these truths would have an irreversible effect on our prayer lives, individually, in our families, together as one body. May we be a church that is regular in our rhythms before you, just as you were and are, Lord Jesus, on our behalf even now. May we be a church that is committed to being faithful to you, even if all around us lose their faith in you, that we would keep our eyes locked onto you. Our faith is not ultimately in one another, but in Jesus, which makes us stronger for one another. And finally, Lord, we thank you that there's a step you take that we simply can't. You have provided atonement And all we do is lay hold of it by grace through faith. How I pray that you would remind us afresh this morning that the gospel is not at root behave. The gospel is belief. It's enjoy. It's receive. And as we believe and enjoy and receive, transform everything. Transform our behavior. Make us worshipers of you that live lives of Christ-like sacrifice and love for our joy, for our good, and for the everlasting and ever-increasing joy and good of those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.